Happy Father's Day. It's good to see you. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn first to Romans chapter 8 today. And that's where we'll be. Uh, I want to say also, I appreciate your prayers. Some of you can probably tell uh, I went on a minor operation right after school um, to remove the gray sport coat that I normally wear when preaching. And uh, it's been touch and go, but we think it's, it's been a success. So Romans chapter 8. Uh, this is Father's Day. We're going to talk about our Heavenly Father today, but I want to begin where I sort of live my life, and that is with children's literature, children's literature. And I, I don't know if you've noticed it, but in children's literature, adoptive parents, and in particular step-parents, do not come off particularly well in a lot of children's literature. There is, you know, maybe most famously, there is the wicked stepmother in, in Cinderella with that adjective sort of attached on, on the front of there. And, and that's on the mom side of the equation. And then in, if you turn to sort of the, the father side of the equation, perhaps the, the worst exemplar of a kind of unkind uh, adoptive or, or step-parent is the, uh, the terrible muggle Vernon Dursley from the Harry Potter series. And I even brought a picture of Vernon Dursley, I'm, I'm expecting my kids to shriek or, or something. He's described as a big, beefy man with hardly any neck, although he did have a very large mustache. And somebody's like, well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. He, it, the problem, though, is it's, it's not his appearance. The problem is how he treats the sort of the main character in the story, Harry. Uh, he is unkind. He, he makes him stay. I think I have a picture of where he forces him to stay in a cupboard under the stairs. He constantly insults him. He practically starves him by giving him just the scraps that are left over from, from dinner. He insults his birth parents constantly. He favors his biological son, Dudley, even though Dudley is a menace and a terror. And, and the, the author, J.K. Rowling, just goes out of her way to depict uh, Vernon Dursley as just the worst type of adoptive father. And I know a lot of the dads in this room, both bio dads and adoptive dads, that bear no resemblance to Vernon Dursley. And despite the fact that sometimes in our culture, if you watch sitcoms or just basically any television show, the father is almost always portrayed as very best an amiable dunce, and that if you really want answers, you need to ask the wife, the kids, or maybe even the golden retriever, but the last place you're going to go is, is dear old dad. And so it's not just adoptive parents and children's literature, it's just in our culture the way that dads are portrayed. But my, my big idea today is, is very simple. And that it is, it's crucial, it's absolutely crucial for you as a human being, as a follower of Jesus, as just as a person, that you come to view God, the, the creator of the universe, as your adoptive father. Your adoptive father. And that he is no Vernon Dursley when it comes to his character. And so the payoff, before we get to the text, I want to talk about why this, why this matters. And so why it matters to view God this Father's Day as your 
adoptive father. And the first thing is that if you can do that and it can sort of sink in, if the penny can drop, so to speak, in the vending machine of your soul, is that it will change your view of God. It'll change your view of God, that he's not some distant, deadbeat dad. He's not an angry judge. He's not a slave master or, or a kind of sort of cosmic bureaucrat who's just set the world spinning and then walked away, but that as your adoptive father, it'll change your view of God. Secondly, it'll change your view of you. It'll change your view of yourself and the way you view yourself. There's a lot of talk in our culture about self-esteem, and that can be good or that can be bad. It can present a sort of culture of entitlement. But the proper view of yourself is that you are a beloved child of the eternal God who chose through no sort of greatness of your own to enter into a relationship of love with you. And so viewing God as your adoptive father will change your view of you. And then thirdly, and especially sort of apropos on Father's Day perhaps, it will free you up to place your biological father maybe even your earthly adoptive father, and certainly your earthly family in the proper perspective. And we'll get to all that and what that means in just a second. But the, the reality is, despite the fact that this is a very biblical way of you and God, one of the things I've discovered in the church is that when Christians speak of God as Father, we do that a lot, our Father, right? We say our Heavenly Father. We often omit exactly the kind of fatherhood that God evidences, and namely, adoption, that God is our adoptive father. And so this Father's Day, I want to honor dads as we always do, but I want to talk primarily about our Heavenly Father and what it means to view Him as this perfect, loving, adoptive father. It's a sermon on one word, one word. The word is a very strange word. It's weastasia. Weastasia. It only occurs to the Apostle Paul. And by the way, if you think a sermon on one word means this is going to be short, um, you've never met Rod or myself. So um, no, no, no promises. Weastasia. Adoption to sonship. So Romans 8, the first text, and we'll talk about why this matters in our lives. Beginning in verse 14, you can read it in your own Bible, or the words will be up on the screen. It says this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children. Literally, it says, are sons of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your weasthasia, your adoption to sonship. And by Him, we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is God's word. In your update, you'll see uh, just four points. And the first of those talks about adoption in the ancient world. This term, weastasia, that we've been adopted to, to sonship. And what's interesting is that even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this term does not show up even a single time. It is not a term that the Jews used to speak of their relationship to Yahweh. They wouldn't say that they are 
they, you know, that, he's, that they've been adopted. They didn't use that word in the entire Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a word that Paul uses because it was common, common practice, or at least practice, in the Greco-Roman world. And so in order to understand what it means when the Bible says that we've been adopted to sonship, weastasia, we have to talk about adoption in the ancient world. And so the first thing we could say is this. It's important to understand that adoption in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, only pertained to male adults. Females, women, girls were not adopted. And children were not adopted. You wouldn't adopt a child because especially with the mortality rate in the ancient world, there was no promise, no guarantee that that child would even make it to adulthood. And you would certainly never adopt a female child because males were prioritized in a patriarchal culture and especially when it came to what they could do for the family in the future. So it was only male adults. Second thing about adoption in the ancient world, it was only utilized when the father lacked an heir. When the father lacked an heir. In the ancient world, they viewed it as, in some ways, signaling a problem or a catastrophe or a deficiency in the father. And so it was only utilized when the father lacked an heir or perhaps a competent heir. The third thing, it was only undertaken like a business relationship of sorts, if it was deemed to be mutually beneficial to all involved. It was a kind of business transaction. And so you chose to enter into an adoptive relationship, a weastasia, an adoption to sonship, only if it benefited you. You, you chose your adopted children in the same way we chose our kickball teams in grade school. And so you would say, okay, there's, okay, male adults, there's LeBron James over there. Would you like to be my son? Because <laughs> I feel like we could have a great business. You could maximize my earning potential, right? But if you look over and there's somebody like me, short, right? No real, I, I'm a professor, no high earning potential, right? You're like, you know what? Just stay over there. I'm going to take LeBron, right? So it was only undertaken if it was deemed to be mutually beneficial. And then lastly, in the case of divine adoptions, in the case of someone being adopted by a god, it was only high and mighty people who could achieve that status, and in particular, only emperors. The first of these was Julius Caesar. Caesar is assassinated by his own senate, and then a guy by the name of Octavian, who later takes the name Augustus, says that he sees Caesar's star ascending in the heavens, and that means that Caesar has become a god. And he promptly is then the son of God because he was the adoptive heir of Julius. So if you wanted to be adopted by a divine being, you better be an emperor because nobody else had that opportunity. Nobody else had that privilege. So this is how it worked in the ancient world. And so perhaps the most important thing to say on this first point is the next slide. That God's adoptive fatherhood breaks every single one of these rules. It shatters the rule book on what it means to be adopted to sonship. It's not just adult males. It's 
anybody, race, tribe, gender. It, it could be children. Jesus says, bring the little children to me. The early church begins to reach out to the children. So it's not just male adults. It is universalized in terms of who is allowed. And you might say, well, then why is it called adoption to sonship? Because that seems kind of sexist, right? It's a way of saying that even if you're a child, even if you're a woman, regardless of your ethnic background, you can belong to the creator of the universe and you are an heir, equal with anybody else. So it's not just male adults. It's not just for a father who lacks an heir. One thing that Paul is crystal clear about is that God does not want for a son. He has the perfect eternal son. He does not lack an heir. And so the fact that he reaches out to all of us in adoption does not signal a deficiency within his being. It signals an overflow of his perfect love that cascades over the whole of creation. It doesn't mean that he lacks a proper son. Thirdly, he shatters the idea that it's undertaken for mutual benefit. And I hate to shatter your own maybe sense of importance, but God doesn't benefit a bit <laughs> from us. He lacks nothing. He doesn't need us. He wasn't sitting around before the creation of the world just lonely and sad and like, well, I'm going to create Josh and that'll make my life better. Right? He doesn't lack for anything. And so again, the fact that he creates and sustains and loves us is a product of his pure and undiluted love and not some deficiency in his character. And then the last one, maybe the most important one, that to be adopted by the creator of the universe is not just for the high and mighty. It's not just for the wealthy, the well-educated, the able-bodied. It is for anybody, to quote the book of Acts. This is a message for all who are far off. That's adoption in the ancient world. And that's the importance of understanding how different it is when Paul says that we, with all of our faults, have been adopted to sonship by the creator of the universe. That's the first and crucial thing to say today. God's adoptive fatherhood, it upends all of these rules. And this carried over to the way the early church thought about their own mission. Next slide. There was an emperor, a bad emperor, by the name of Julian. And if you've heard of him, it's probably by the moniker of Julian the Apostate. He started out as a baptized Christian, and he converted back to paganism, and he tried to convert the entire Roman Empire back to paganism, which failed because Hashtag, he died. But he said this. This was his great complaint about the early church, his great sort of smear against the early church. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. <laughs> He says, that's what I hate about the Christians. They just show this indiscriminate love to everybody and the gospel spreading like wildfire, right? Like, how awesome would it be? I don't know if that's how the church is known today. I don't know if that's how the church is smeared today. You know what I don't, I don't like about Christians? They show this just indiscriminate compassion to everyone. 
But that's how the early church was smeared by the emperor Julian. Is it like they've carried over this radical, promiscuous love that they were shown by their adoptive father to care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Next slide. There's a practice in the ancient world. This doesn't show it necessarily, but it's just the best picture I could find of exposure. And exposure was, in the ancient world, if you had a child who was undesirable for whatever reason, perhaps it was a girl and you wanted a boy, perhaps the child had some sort of physical abnormality or, or deformity, perhaps whatever, you would take the infant to a deserted location, oftentimes like a mountaintop or a hill, and you would leave the child there for the gods. And this was considered acceptable practice to dispose of an unwanted child this way. And all of us probably were tempted to sort of look down our nose at that, but I, I, would, I would even venture to say that we have our own ways of disposing of unwanted children today. And we are not nearly so civilized as we might think. But one of the Christian traditions that sort of broke the mold of what it meant to be a parent, even an adoptive parent, was that the early church began to go out and they began to claim these children that had been left and abandoned through the practice of exposure and to raise them in the church, even though there was no biological connection between this new Jesus-centered family and the child that they had taken in. And they began to take this indiscriminate adoptive love of their heavenly father that we talked about just a second ago and to cast it about in this world and to grow by means of that, by this sort of radical love for the other. And so that's adoption in the ancient world. What about the adoption that Paul speaks of? The second, the second thing in our, in our outline. When Paul says that you've been adopted to sonship, he speaks of that as adding, not erasing. It's an additive, not an erasing. And so we'll talk about what that means. Galatians 4 is another text in which this word is used. It says, but when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive, and here's that word, adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Galatians 4 is the sort of companion passage to Romans chapter 8, and, and they're really, really similar. But one of the things that's different is this way that the passage speaks of Jesus as God's son, but he adds something to his personhood, and that is human nature. When he's born, when he's incarnated, he's born of a woman, he's born under law. And in the same way, when we are adopted by God, 
something is added to our human status. And maybe the leading scholar on adoption in Paul's letters and in the ancient world, one of the leading scholars is a, is a lady by the name of Erin Heim. And she writes this. She says, in ancient Rome, adopted sons were considered products of both their biological and adoptive families, though their allegiance was to their adoptive family. Thus, adoption was not an erasure of previous identity, but rather an additive. And she cites inscriptions. I won't put these long, strange names on the, on the screen, but a 4th century BC Greek uh, inscription that says, Apollodotus, the son of Polycrates, that's his bio dad, and it says he's the son of Sosistratus. Shout out to Sosistratus. According to adoption. And so both of the fathers are listed in terms of the identity of this Apollodotus. That it's an adding to one's identity. It's, it's not an erasing of one's identity to be adopted in the ancient world. And this is important for the theology of the, the early church. To be a Christian to be adopted by the Heavenly Father is not to erase your unique racial, national, cultural, familial identities. It doesn't expunge our diversity. Even in heaven, it doesn't. What's interesting is the throne room of heaven is talked about as the place where people from every tribe and every tongue are gathered it, it, their tongue, their, their distinct language and cultural is kept intact. It's not the erasing of our earthly identities and our earthly uniqueness, but it's this bringing together of unity in spite of our beautiful diversity. It's an adding, not an erasing of your previous connections to your earthly family or your earthly tribe or tongue. I thought about why this matters. I, I sent some messages out to some friends of mine because um, we've not adopted any children yet anyway. That yet might scare my wife because <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't, um, but I have many friends who have become adoptive dads and adoptive um, moms. And I just asked them to share with me a little bit about their experience. I brought a picture of, of one of this is my friend Josh who's a pastor up in Kansas. And he talks about his son Dawit who was adopted from Africa. And he says... Even though we have all kinds of legal documentation that says he's our son, Dawit doesn't have to check his adoption papers to know that he's our son. He knows it because we call him son. He feels it because an incredible spirit of love has been poured out on him that bears witness to that reality. It doesn't erase his unique identity, his unique culture from Africa, his unique complexion. It's an adding to that. And he is every bit the son as Josh's other uh, bio kids. Another friend of mine from, from Michigan, a guy by the name of Rick, and these are his four kids, two bio, two adopted. And he says this to my email. This is typical Rick. He says, relative to adoption, I don't have any magic quotes. From my view, my kids are my kids. Biological sons, adopted daughters. Being their dad is the best role in this planet other than two of them are shorter or tanner than others or paler or taller. There's no difference. We are family. It's this, this adding. And then my friend Kendra, 
forgive the Michigan shirts. I didn't intend to use curse words in church, but uh, the, 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 anyway, uh, Kendra says this. She says, I was adopted from South Korea as an infant. I consider myself twice adopted, once by my earthly father and again by my heavenly father. Adoption by my earthly father granted me a new name and a new citizenship. An adoption by my heavenly father granted me a new identity as a child of God and as a citizen of heaven. I'm grateful for the ways that my parents' adoption of me has given me just a small window into the heart of our heavenly father and the sacrifices he has made to adopt us. Anybody who's been through an international adoption knows there are, there are sacrifices, hurdles, challenges. The sacrifices he has made to adopt us as his children. I may not physically be related to my father, but he is still every bit my dad. I am his own child. We are not physical children of God, but he has grafted us in as his own children. It's an adding. It's not an erasing. But there's that line in Heim's quote where she says, although you belong as a, quote, son or child to both fathers, she says this word, that your allegiance, your, your, your ultimate allegiance in the ancient world was to belong to your adoptive father. It's to be added to a new family that doesn't erase our old family, but takes precedence in this one area, the area of allegiance, where your ultimate loyalty lies. And we talked on Mother's Day about how Jesus challenges some of the ways that family was ranked on the sort of depth chart of allegiance in the ancient world. And he does this very radical thing where he places loyalty to God and the people of God above relationships of familial connectedness. He says even at one point, my mother and brothers are right here. Those who listen and obey my teachings, he says. And so if, if there's an application here, it's that every one of us is called to honor our fathers, our mothers, regardless of whether they were great, loving, present fathers or mothers or not. But we must also move to break certain cycles of sin as we transfer our allegiance to our Heavenly Father. And every family has patterns of iniquity, of addiction, of brokenness, of imperfection. I would love, one of the challenges on Father's Day is pastors are like tempted to go looking for a perfect dad model in the Bible. And there aren't any. <laughs> like, oh, I'll tell them to be like David. Don't do that. Oh, but I'll tell them to be like Solomon. Don't, definitely don't do that, right? Oh, I'll tell them to be like uh, Abraham. No, don't do that, right? Every earthly father is imperfect. And so the scriptures call us to honor our dads, whatever that means in spite of their faults, but to give our allegiance, our highest allegiance to our heavenly father. And that's going to mean breaking some cycles of sin in our lives. It's going to mean hard work fueled by the Holy Spirit, motivated by grace, not by guilt. 
but God calls us to that allegiance on the basis, not of trying to earn it, but because we've already been adopted before we ever get ourselves cleaned up on the outside. Adding, not erasing. Number three. Number three. Look at that Michigan thing off the screen. Adoption as God's plan A. Third, we ought stay as the reference. Ephesians chapter 1. It says this in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for weastasia, adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We said already that in the ancient world, though, though not necessarily today, this I'm talking about the ancient world, adoption was not plan A. Adoption signaled a problem for the, for the dad or the mom. Maybe it was uh, infertility. Maybe it was the death of biological children. Maybe it was the problem that the oldest was, you know, really irresponsible. Um, but it, it was not plan A in the ancient world. But what is crystal clear in Ephesians chapter 1 is that with God it was. With God it was plan A. It wasn't like God had this wonderful plan and then Adam screwed it up and he's like, all right, Jesus, you're in. Okay, I guess I'll adopt them this way. But Paul says it's before creation ever happened, God purposed to adopt sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the earth, before creation, before sin, before you ever did one thing, either good or bad, he says, I purposed to be your adoptive father. I wanted you before you were ever born, before you ever got straight A's or straight F's, before you ever won a state championship or set the bench, before you ever did anything good or bad. I wanted you. You, not because you're a means to an end that fixes a deficiency within me, God says, but because I love you. It was plan A that God would move towards you as a loving father, not an angry or abusive dad, but a loving, adoptive father. And you might say, so what? Hopefully you don't say that. But, like, what difference does that make? And, and I'll tell you one area where it makes a huge, huge difference. And it makes a difference in whether or not you are willing to listen to the voice of what the Bible calls the accuser. In the original language, it's the ha-satan, the satan the voice of the accuser. And one of the things that's kind of been pushed to the forefront in the last few weeks is the epidemic of American suicides. I, I wrote on this a week or two ago on my blog. Um, 
I was a big fan of Anthony Bourdain's travel show, his food show. I used to sit on the couch and eat potato chips and watch him eat like really good food. Um, the New York Times reported a while back that suicides in the last 15 years have gone up 25% in America. It's an epidemic. It's a huge problem. They've gone up most dramatically in people who are outwardly quite successful, who seem to have it pretty much together, live in nice neighborhoods, drive nice cars, and you know seem just pretty much okay. And it's a complicated problem. It has lots and lots of angles, and I am not trained in all of those angles. I would never pretend to have some sort of magic charm solution or incantation or prayer that just makes all the suicide go away. But I think one of the areas that is crucially important for Christians is to begin to trust the voice of your heavenly father over the voice of the, the ha-setan, the accuser. The accuser is, it's literally, it's not a proper name for Satan. It's a title. It's a job description. He's like the prosecuting attorney. He's the accuser of the brethren, the one that comes and says, you are not good enough. The world would be better off if you weren't here. Even your family would be better off if you weren't here. You're just an eternal screw-up. That's the voice of the accuser. And the voice of the Heavenly Father says, Listen, I knew all of that before you were born. I knew your worst moments before you were a single atom and I purpose to move into a loving, fatherly relationship with you in spite of all of that. Your adoption was plan A. And you need to listen to me. And not the voice of the accuser. Listen to the voice of your loving, adoptive, heavenly father, regardless of whether you had a loving, earthly dad or not. It was plan A. That's a big contrast. Last point. The last one. What does it mean when Paul uses this word that, that we've been adopted to sonship? That, that this relationship has been instigated, instituted by God? It means that you have a share in the inheritance. That's what adoption was about in the ancient world. It was about an inheritance. It was about an heir. Romans 8, verse 16, says this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, literally it says sons, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. One of the greatest contrasts between God's adoptive father love and the adoptive father love in the ancient world is like you would never multiply adoptions in the ancient world because every adoption was diluting the inheritance, right? It would be like if my dad was like Warren Buffett and he adopted the entire continent of Asia. <laughs> It'd be like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm going to have to do something now. Like, you would never multiply heirs because it was diluting the inheritance. 
And so it was like, you know, okay, I'll take Octavian. He'll be Augustus. He'll be my adoptive son, and he'll take over the whole empire. But you would never just, like, adopt across this broad swath because the inheritance was finite, and you would dilute it down to nothing. And what God says is, my inheritance isn't finite. And I will spread this adoptive love far and wide. I will multiply heirs like you would not believe because the inheritance isn't finite, because the inheritance isn't gold or land or cars. The inheritance is God himself. God without measure. God without limit. You are my portion, says the psalmist. You are my inheritance. And so the good news for Christians, whether you're rich whether you're poor, whether you are happy, whether you are sad, is that to be adopted by this heavenly Father is to receive the ultimate inheritance. Heaven, but not just heaven. The new creation, but not just a renewed creation. God himself. And on Father's Day of all days, that is the ultimate good news. Let's pray. God, on this day where we honor dads, a day that's beautiful and joyous for some of us and terribly painful for others, we take great hope and great delight in the fact that you are the ultimate, perfect, adoptive father. You reached out to us before we were ever born that you broke all of the rules of what adoptive love looked like, and that you promised an inheritance to us, not just stuff, but a relationship with you forever and ever. I pray that my friends here, regardless of whether their earthly father's situation is um, happy or sad, would take delight in listening to the voice of their heavenly father and not the voice of the accuser. We love you. We celebrate you today, this Father's Day, even as we honor our earthly dads. It's in your name that we pray.